welcome to the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. Today on the show, we're going to talk with Graham Stoney, who has a website called confidentman.net, where he chronicles having grown up with a controlling mother and a passive father, and has made it his mission to help others, particularly men, recover from this experience so they can have healthy relationships. But first, a few announcements. My numbers for this podcast are growing every day, and the show regularly reaches the number one slot in society and culture on the Podomatic platform. However, I've unfortunately lost my sponsor due to COVID, and now I need to rely on listener support via Patreon. Think of how Channel 9 and NPR operate, minus the political bent, that is. And that's essentially how I need to proceed in order to keep the Suzanne Banker show alive. So with that in mind, if you'd hate to see this podcast disappear and would like to see it remain as commercial-free as possible, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. There are four very economical levels. All you have to do is go to thesuzannevenkershow.com, scroll down just a bit until you see the Become a Patron button in the middle of the page. It's that easy. Like you, I would hate to see this countercultural platform disappear. There aren't enough around, in my opinion. Finally, I just wanted to share with you that we got so much positive feedback from the episode with my husband, Bill, that he's going to be joining us once a month beginning August 10th. So be on the lookout for that. Welcome to the show, Graham. Hi, Suzanne. It's great to be here. It's great to hear from you. So tell everybody where we're talking to you from, um, because I think that's a first. Well, I don't think it's a first. It is a first for me and my listeners. And tell us um, what's life like over there. Well, I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia. Um, it's like just after nine in the morning. It's a beautiful wintry day over here. It's quite sunny. Um, yeah. Winter? So, yes, it's winter. It's kind of cold. Although it's Australia, so kind of cold. never gets really cold. Like it doesn't ever snow in Sydney. Um, but it's, um, it's a little bit breezy today. So, Graham, um, I first came upon, I don't know how I came upon it, but, you know, it's the Internet. So it could be just having gone down some rabbit hole. You know how it is. And I landed on this article that you wrote called How to Recover from a Controlling Mother. Mm. And I was um, riveted. Um, you don't I you just don't see a lot on that topic, in my opinion, on, uh-huh. on online or really anywhere. Um and so, I, and I was in the middle of writing a book of my own. This was several years ago called The Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage. And I was talking about what I called alpha women. You know, there's a spectrum there and I, I get into, you know, what that means as far as being alpha, what I described at the time as alpha, which could be anything from just really hard headed to being in this case, like, like you've written about almost abusive. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how I guess I came upon the article. So I'm going to have you tell everybody about, you know, who you are and what you're about and about this um, website that you have where I, had f- where I found this article. Okay. Um, well, I wear many hats, but one of them is as a confidence coach, uh, and I created this website called The Confident Man Project, essentially to help other men like me and myself, to be honest, like I was still working through a lot of this myself, uh, who had grown up in an environment where they'd had a very controlling mother and that had had a whole string of effects in their life uh, and in my life. Uh, and I was in the process of trying to work through and unravel some of the impact of that on me and how it had affected my relationships with women as an adult, um, with other men, just with the world in general. Uh, and I recognized that a lot of it came down to this childhood programming that I had received on the, on the end of this connection with my mother, who used control essentially as a strategy to regulate her emotions. Uh, and the more I, I dived into this, um, the more that I saw that emotions and dealing with emotions were the key to unraveling this whole thing. So that's if there's one thing I'd like your listeners to take away from this, it's that the answer is to learn how to deal with emotions. And one of the things about controlling people is that they, they use control as a strategy for regulating their own emotions by controlling their environment around them. And that's not a lot of fun to be on the receiving end of when you're a kid. The other side of this that I looked into very deeply is what traditional psychologists would call attachment theory. And to me, that explains a lot about why it's so traumatic 
having a mother that you can't connect to um, because they're emotionally unavailable. And emotionally unavailability uh, and narcissism is another term for this, uh, tends to go hand in hand with the controlling personality because they are so unable to regulate their own emotions, they have no capacity to be empathic to the people around them because that's a very threatening and vulnerable thing if you're actually deeply insecure inside and you're kind of protecting yourself with a shell of narcissism that protects you from this hard world out there. So I'm going to read some quotes from these different articles and just to tell everyone. So we're going to um, we're going to first cover that article that I that I found, which was called How to Recover from a Controlling Mother. And then that linked to an article entitled How to Recover from a Passive Father, because those two very, very often go hand in hand. And I'm going to talk a lot about that because that's a lot of what I see in my work. And then you sent me an article that was just this year in March called How to Heal attachment trauma, which you just mentioned. So I want to talk about that at the end, because I think they kind of one feeds into the other. So let's start at the beginning. You wrote, I suffered from a chronic lack of self-confidence right from early childhood through most of my adult life. I'm a sensitive person and was deeply traumatized by the never ending conflict and hostility in my parents' relationship. My mother was and still is the dominant force in my family of origin, highly intelligent, but emotionally withheld. She was always quick to criticize and would never back down in any of the petty arguments with my father that characterized their relationship. He, on the other hand, was relatively passive and was often driven to explode with frustration due to his inability to express his emotions or to handle my mother's frequent put-downs. Our home did not feel like a safe or fun place to be much of the time. My two elder sisters both dealt with this in their own way, leaving me feeling excluded and abandoned a lot of the time. My sensitivity in this situation was always invalidated and caused me a great deal of grief and felt like a genuine weakness. So, um, Ooh, let's all yeah. take a deep breath because that's pretty heavy stuff. It is. It, it is. Ooh. Yeah. And it's probably, and I know it's been a while since you've written that. And tell me, for, before we talk about that, how is, um, how, how are things for you today compared to when you wrote that? Has it um, changed? And by the way, is your mom still uh, alive and you just have a relationship with her? Uh, my mom is still alive. Um, my father actually died in February this year, and mm. that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, but the process of that brought up a lot of this childhood stuff for me again. So one thing that I learned, and one of my mentors used this metaphor of the onion, that there's layers of the emotional onion that you work through mm-hmm. and then you get to the next layer yep. and then you work through that. Yeah, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, if someone uses that onion metaphor on me one more time, <laughs> I'm just going to scream. <laughs> like, God, it That's really funny. used to piss me off. Yeah. But it's it's totally accurate. And even hearing those words that I wrote read back to me, like that's such a succinct and accurate and emotive description of what it was like that it still moves me that you know i went through that and Mm -hmm. there are other people that are going through that all the time Mm -hmm. so where things are now for me is uh i have moved on i've done quite a lot of inner work myself i thought to be a really effective coach i needed to do a lot of my own inner work and i still believe that because to heal these attachment wounds requires like it's an interpersonal wound, so it requires an interpersonal connection to heal. I, I don't think you can atta- heal an attachment wound just by individual meditation or writing or all those other things, which are great things. I still do those, but you actually need to connect to other humans to heal an attachment rupture. And so now what I would say is different between when I wrote that and now is I have some friends in my life that we have real meaningful conversations about how we feel and we don't filter it so much. It's not about trying to make this person like me. It's about being honest and being real with them. And when you're in relationships like that, it's challenging if you've had these attachment wounds to begin with because it doesn't feel safe initially. And so that's why there's that layer of the onion thing going on. You got to get to a point where you feel safe with somebody before you can really tell them how you feel deep down and that's a vulnerable thing and it's exactly the thing that a narcissistic mother for instance is avoiding and so being around that doesn't initially feel safe it's Mm -hmm. actually 
our natural way of being to be open and to be expressing how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. But if you're brought up in an environment where that wasn't going on around you, uh, you end up internalizing that. And I want to point out, because I think it's really important, that there's there's a definite spectrum for this type of person or this type of behavior mm. in that, you know, when you talk about somebody who's controlling, it could be, I mean, it's so common among women today <laughs> for a whole uh-huh. slew of other reasons. Um, and I write about that a lot where it's, it doesn't necessarily devolve into, um, you know, anything that could be construed as abusive. It's just sort of a general need to take control. And mm-hmm. as you say, which I completely agree, that's really just a form of anxiety and that it's ultimately covering up this fear that you have that something isn't going to work the way you need it to work in order for you to feel safe and grounded and all of that. So the fact yep. that you point out, you know, um, I, I think it's important. So just a little background. So my mother was critical and controlling, and that's why this mm-hmm. interests me so much and um, compelled me to write a story that I did, or it wasn't really a story. It was a self-help book, but I have it's sort of part memoir. Um uh-huh. And there are levels to that. Like, I don't know that your experience was my experience, but the same sort of general idea could be, could, you know, is, is a fair description. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it becomes very clear, doesn't it, when you're on the receiving end of that for 18 years or, well, longer, longer, but I mean, as far as being in the home, um, at least in my case, um, you can you can see the pattern of when it when it becomes bad, it's always that feeling of being out of control. So it's taking mm. control because you are out of control of your own emotions and you don't know how to solve the problem in front of you. So rather than yep. have a plan for that, you go on the attack, so to speak. Is that mm. fair? Would you say you describe it the same way? Yeah, that's some pretty good metaphor. An attack... Um, so I've studied a lot about how the nervous system works because I, I recognize that this is a biophysical kind of thing we're dealing with. And um, when you're under attack, we have this fight, flight, or freeze response that we have. So on one level, there's fight or flight. If you're under attack, you either you fight back or you run, and it's an evolutionary thing that we've evolved. But even on a deeper level, there's also a freeze response. And the deepest therapies that I'm aware of for dealing with this stuff are somatic, which means they deal with what's going on physiologically in the person's body, not just in their mind or in their thoughts. And the the reason why this somatic stuff is important is because it allows you to unfreeze this freeze response. And when we're under attack, like you say, um, and I've thought many times whether this is like a conscious strategy that the controlling person is using or whether they're just, they've just learned that it works so they do it. I think they've just learned that it works, so they do it. But if a person can overwhelm your nervous system and put you into freeze mode, it makes you very compliant because you can't yeah. defend yourself. And it's not a conscious thing. You're like, physiologically, you're frozen. So a controlling parent can easily overwhelm their children's nervous system by screaming at them, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that puts you into a state where you can't fight back. And then that can become a strategy that they use to get what they want. And of course, the difference between being a controlling parent and being a controlling spouse, right? Very different in terms of, I mean, the process for, for that person is the same who's doing it, but the, on the receiving end, it's a completely different type of relationship, of course, if you're a child versus a spouse. So in my case, and you can tell me about yours, you know, the, and this is what I write so much about, is that when a woman is overpowering um, in that mm-hmm. way, and I call it being in her masculine energy and going, you know, trying to um, sort of... Um, control the universe, if you will, um, is is bumping up against a man's um, desire to see her happy and take care of her, but uh-huh. mixed with needing to be the one who's going to provide and protect for this person because that's in your nature. But then when you have somebody that's strong-willed wife that's in that mode, you're, mm. you're, you're also step back almost... Um, naturally because it's not in your nature to fight with women this is my argument that men are not meant to fight with women they don't like to fight with women um Uh and it's not natural and i and and so they don't have anywhere to go with that so 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 often the controlling or critical wife is accompanied by a very passive father right um i mean you may have a different analysis of it but that's mine and that's what i you know works well 
Go ahead. Look, I, I acknowledge your analysis because there's lots of different ways of looking at this. Um, and they all work to a degree. It's a matter of finding the one that works for the individual that's struggling with this problem. Uh, I would question whether it's completely different in um, um, adult partner child. relationship. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is something that I recognized was uh, I've done a lot of inner child work and I have tremendous respect for this way of looking at it. And often what happens in, um, in any relationship when there's conflict or people are having problems with emotions that they're having difficulty regulating, not that we ever think of it that way. We tend to just be in the moment we get overwhelmed. Um, people tend to restore back to their infantile state and whatever strategy worked when they were a kid. Mm. And when I say worked, I meant made you survive. It yes, didn't necessarily right. work in terms of actually got your needs met, but like for a controlling mother, if when I grew up with a controlling mother, for instance, the strategy that worked was to submit. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it didn't get my needs met, mm, no. but it did right. stop her to back yeah. down. Right, exactly. Yeah. And in terms of the impact on my wider life, um, one of my mentors used to say the strategies developed by a seven-year-old rarely work well for an adult. <laughs> and it's, 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 he, he nailed it, you know? There are so, people doing it left and right, trying to do it because they're still holding on to that. Yeah, yeah. So when you've got two adults together, what you're really dealing with is if they haven't resolved their inner wounds from childhood, you've really got two wound, wounded inner children who mm -hmm. are relating. And that's what comes to the fore when there's a situation where there's conflict or there's some issue that they can't deal with. The man's frustrated with the woman. Because um, a man who is really highly evolved has dealt with his past and is yes. really well-grounded will be able to stand with a woman who is in her whatever she's in and say, you know, I love you. And the way you're behaving right now is not okay with right, me. Right. And you can't do that around our children. And I'm going to want to talk with you about this later when you've calmed down. But right now we need some time out. Now, to be able to do that, you've got to be pretty well grounded yourself. And most men, because they didn't get the education in how to deal with their emotions, have never dealt with that. So, yeah. You wrote... Uh, this is getting into the um, adult male who's already been through this experience with, with his mother. Women actually love men who stand up to them. And part of her is actually waiting for you to start doing this so that she can stop worrying about you. Um, it's, I'm not sure what you mean by stop worrying about you, but just FYI. So I've, I've covered this whole dynamic several times, many times actually on this podcast, because that's so much about what I do, um, is explaining how, that's you're right. That's exactly women feel safe. That's my argument for it. I, didn't, I don't know what you mean by worrying. So you have to tell me that. But so my argument mm -hmm. is that they, in order for them to feel safe, they need to know that you can stand your ground and that when you become passive or let it happen, then that just escalates the conflict. And this is what happened in my own parents' marriage because my father was not well, going back to my original argument, I don't think men are cut out to fight with their wives, period. But, Mm -hmm. There's some who are more comfortable with it than others. Let's just put it that way. Um, okay. and, and my father certainly wasn't. So eventually he would just sort of hang his head and, and go in the other room. And that didn't resolve it. Like you said before, it, it just, like you said, it just stops the attack, if you will, or it's like your coping mechanism, but it doesn't solve mm -hmm. anything at all. In no. fact, it's, it, it, you're, you're nowhere better off than you were when it started. So that mm -hmm. wasn't the proper tactic. And they never really learned the dance, you know, up until the day they died, they were married for 44 years, but they never, they never got it, you know? And so yeah, they just wow. kind of moseyed along and, um, it just had an ex incredibly huge impact, needless to say on my sister and me. Um, and so I've seen this up close. I feel very close to it and I know mm -hmm. how it works. Um, so when, when I read that piece where you said women actually love men who stand up to them, that's, that's what I thought of, but go ahead and I'll let you explain what you meant by stop well, worrying about I, you. I'm actually curious what that was like for you, being in that situation with the dad that backed down and parents that just never really were able to resolve anything. Um, you're turning it around on Graham on me now. <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to be the interviewer. <laughs> um, I know. Uh, um, it was very painful. It was very, very painful mm. and um, sad. And you, I wanted to scream out 
what I wanted him to do differently or what I wanted her to do differently. And I'm sure I did. I'm sure there were times when I did, but, um, it was demoralizing, you know, and, and, and I was not safe in that environment because, well, for obvious reasons. So yeah, it was, it was bad. There's just no question about it. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. And you know, the reason I ask is it's, I believe when we share these things, it's healing both for ourselves and for people listening. So hearing you say that, I felt a shiver go through me and I've learned that that's my nervous system relaxing and going, okay, this is a safe person to be around. Mm -hmm. Like Suzanne gets it. She's been wounded in the past, Mm -hmm. but she's not going to attack me now because she's to some degree, I don't know you all that well, but to some degree you've dealt with the impact of this on you and you don't want to recreate it in your own life from what I'm hearing. So you're trying to help other people not recreate it in their life. And, you know, that's good for everybody. Yes, correct. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> Which I guess is and exactly coming, what you're doing. Yeah, totally. You know, we're healing ourselves by healing other people. And particularly your question was about what, what do I mean about being worried? And you talked about how it didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. The big thing I heard in what you just said was it, it didn't feel safe. And it doesn't feel safe being around a man who is not able to stand up for himself in any context. So when you're a child and your father is not able to stand up to your mother, it messes with your head because partly why why should he need to stand up to your mother? They're meant to be working together <laughs> to create a safe environment for everybody. But, you know, reality is humans are humans, and so we all go off the rails sometimes. And one of the good things about the way humans reproduce is we usually have two parents. Okay, it doesn't always end up, you know, there's a lot of single parents out there doing a great job, but nature has kind of made it so that we tend to have two parents, and that means if one mm-hmm. goes off the rails, the other one can correct and can go, no, that's not okay. This behavior right. is not the best. And a man can do that to a woman, and a woman can do that to a man. Uh, admittedly, I reckon they would do it slightly different ways, but... When you have a man who's not able to stand up to his wife when she's coming from her wounded inner child and projecting abuse onto other people, mm-hmm. children will sense that it's not safe to be around that and you end up with a lot of anxiety. And I've written and talked about how that, and I have a sidekick on here, Andre Parody, and we've talked about this a lot, um, mm-hmm. that when a little girl has had, so that we explain this a little bit differently, when you don't feel safe with the masculine figure in your house, either as you put here, passive, ineffective, or absent father, you said, has an enormous effect on a man's development and mm. self-confidence. And I want to get to that in a minute because I want to talk about the difference between being a boy and a girl on the receiving end of this. Um, but cool. but when a girl is either the father's an alcoholic or her parents are divorced so she doesn't see him, or in my case, the father's passive up against this very strong-willed woman then you as a girl sort of get, well, I like the way Andre puts it, you just get the the femininity knocked out of you because you don't feel safe. And so you go into your masculine. You think you need to step in and be that man. You need to be the safety figure. You need to be in your masculine because that's what's going to make you safe. So any concept of being able to rely on a man emotionally in that way and be vulnerable and feminine is just sort of knocked out of you. And this is how we get women. This is one way, one way in which we get women who are overcompensating for what they didn't get. And they're bringing that into oh. their relationships later. And I'm trying to help them sort of get that out of them because it's not working in their relationships when you're too masculine. Because then you're bumping up against your, your husband. And so it's you've got to get that back to that masculine-feminine dynamic if you want it to work. So. Yeah, no, I totally I acknowledge you because what happens is those women, when they're hyper in their masculine, is they tend to attract men that are kind of in their feminine. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, <laughs> that analogy's got some weaknesses to it because it implies feminine's kind of weak, but that's not what it's no, saying. No, no, I don't know. The strength of feminine is just different to the strength of masculine. Right. Um, I really like tantric philosophy's take on this because it's it uses those words masculine and feminine but doesn't do them in a derogatory or degrading way to either of the genders. It's just acknowledging there's a difference to our energies. So, um, yeah, so women who tend to be very dominant tend to attract men who tend to be quite passive, and that sounds like that's what happened with your parents and my parents. And like you say, that ends up with a structure that doesn't feel real safe to be around because a woman's trying to compensate for this 
fear that if she's really in her feminine energy, she's going to get abandoned or rejected or mm-hmm. hurt. And the man's trying to compensate for the fact that if he's really assertive, he's going to end up getting rejected, abandoned mm-hmm. or hurt. Mm-hmm. And um, neither of them are really being real. And a child with a sensitive nervous system will just pick that up and internalize it. And it's a great example of where that seven-year-old strategy of back down because mum's going to keep screaming if you don't mm-hmm. doesn't work for a man as an adult because when a woman's screaming and um, at a man for whatever reason, uh, generally backing down is not the best thing to do. The best thing to create a sense of safety for her, the best thing is to stand there and say, look, I get that you're screaming at me and I love you and it's not okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, and this is something that I recognized even with my own mother. I started to see that one reason why she was anxious was she had very, very poor boundaries. And so people with very poor boundaries, we, people like me tend to react to them by backing down and not giving them stronger boundaries, not saying, no, you can't do that. In fact, what they need is to be told, no, you can't do that. Like, Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and, and don't you feel like it, it, it comes from somewhere in that it's just – how do I say this? It's like it's been passed down generation to generation. Unless you break yeah. that cycle, it's it's in certainly my my mother's case. Her her parents or her mother and grandmother were like way, mm. way worse. When I talk about a spectrum, <laughs> my mom was loosey goosey and easy compared to them. See? Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So it's like you're you're passing it on, and yet each hopefully each generation is maybe hopefully getting the message a little bit and then maybe being a little lighter version of that. And then at some point, hopefully I'd like to think um, I'm breaking it. <laughs> at least that's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> Entirely. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, totally. Well, eventually someone, you hope someone's going to wise up and start breaking the cycle. And uh, I, I was fairly lucky when I started studying this, a lot of my extended family were alive, my aunties and uncles and cousins, well, the cousins are mostly still alive. Um, and I actually did a lot of family research, if you like, by going and talking to all the members of my extended family. Because I could see this wasn't just happening in my parents' relationship. It was like a whole broad extended family dysfunction. And when I talked to aunties and uncles and cousins, they were my family, but they weren't immediately right in it. So they could have a more, well, we could talk about it without getting so triggered that it was impossible, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I've heard this a consistent story of just emotional disconnection across the whole thing and the amount of pain that that was causing for everyone in the extended family. And I think it's only when someone, like you say, breaks a cycle that you can do something about it. I want to read something else that you wrote about that you probably haven't heard in a little while. So um, okay. hopefully I picked a good good section because I want to specify the difference between being a boy and being a girl on the receiving end of this. I think that is really fascinating. Cool. You, you wrote, I was fascinated with girls at primary school, especially the pretty ones. I always wanted to hang around with them, be their friend, and get to know them. Later I learned about sex and that there was even more fun things we could potentially do together than I ever imagined. (laughs) The problem was that the pretty girls didn't want to hang around with me. I was desperately insecure, anxious, and needy, constantly on edge due to the conflict at home. I was fortunate to have had a high-paying career that gave me material success, but I lacked emotional satisfaction and was terribly lonely despite being highly regarded and having plenty of friends. I knew that if I was to become truly happy, I needed to address the underlying problem of my lack of of self-confidence. It was in this process I discovered that the key thing that I was missing was the ability to recognize, respond to, and master my emotions. It's just not taught in our culture, yet it's the key to growing from a boy into a man. And I think that gets into your website and how you came to be focused on the Confident Man Project, I assume, yes? Mm, Yeah, totally. Wow, I wrote that. Yeah, you did. Pretty good stuff, huh? (laughs) Really nailed it there, yeah. That's nailed my core wound, you know. And talk about the mastering of the emotions, because I know that's that that. And I've, as I say, I've had other men on. We've talked about this same whole thing, and it's always about how to get control of those emotions. Explain why the emotions are more difficult for someone in your boat, let's say, um, mm-hmm. or even in my own, maybe, to get control of them, as whereas uh, compared to someone who did not have a mother like like you and I did. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I could nail that in one word, and the word is trauma. So essentially what happens, this is not so much about the controlling aspect of my mother, but the emotional unavailability. So the way that an infant learns to regulate their emotions is they co-regulate with their biological caregivers, principally their mother and secondarily their father, and then their wider family. So when things are working well, the mother is emotionally available and the infant bonds emotionally with her and learns to regulate the, their mood swings by watching the mother regulate her emotions. Um, so a mother will be empathic towards their children so they feel part of what the child is feeling. But because they're an adult and assuming that they're a mature adult, they feel it, but it's not overwhelming for them like it is for the infant. So when the infant is in incredibly distressed, the mother is mildly distressed. And so the infant, through their empathic bond, which initially is just nonverbal, like it's just eye contact, mm -hmm. and then it becomes verbal when the infant learns how to speak. Mm -hmm. um, through that empathic bond, the infant learns that it's okay to have these emotional mood swings. Like it, it upsets their mother, but it doesn't phase them, and the mother is still there. The mother doesn't abandon them. Now, if the mother is narcissistic, and what I mean by narcissistic is just incapable of um, regulating their mm -hmm. own emotions mm -hmm. and un unable to show empathy to other people, uh, then they're likely to get overwhelmed and abandon the infant to deal with regulating their own emotions. And then a child learns that to be emotional is to be abandoned, and then everything kind of spirals down from there. So uh, that means that if you grew up around a mother that was un emotionally unavailable, it's difficult to regulate your emotions as a child, and it's traumatic. So what I mean by trauma is trauma is the emotional residue that's left in our nervous system from any event that was overwhelming at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, there's big T traumas, like major things like overt abuse, and there's little T traumas like losing your toy. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say divorce was another big one. Divorce, death of someone mm -hmm. close to you, mm -hmm. all these things that are emotionally traumatic. Mm -hmm. And the way that you, we deal with that is our, you've got to express the pain that these things have caused. But our nervous system has sort of a, an engineer. I used to be an engineer. So an engineer would call it, it's got a fixed dynamic range. There's only so much emotional pain you can express and be in at any time. Uh, and if you're overwhelmed, like if you get more than that, then the rest of it is just stuck in your nervous system until you get to get it out later. And the process of grief, like, you know, because I said my dad died, so I've been going through this grieving process. Mm. You don't get it out all in one hit. It takes time. The layers of the onion thing again. So uh, now this is all complicated because if you've had the inability to express your emotions as a child, like if it didn't feel safe because it wasn't safe mm -hmm. because the people around you weren't doing it, they mm -hmm. weren't modeling it for you. Again, a mother will get upset and will cry about something, but it'll pass relatively quickly because she's an adult. But if you never saw your mum cry, like me, uh, you internalise this message that's not okay. And then as a boy, you go out into the world and people tell you boys don't cry and you get this message reinforced that's not okay to express how you, you really feel. So you just bottle it all up inside until it becomes overwhelming. And then the problem is you've got all this trauma in your nervous system and that trauma can get triggered by any situation that's remotely similar to the situation that created that trauma. So, for instance, you got abandonment trauma because your mum wasn't emotionally available when you were an infant, and that's if that's still in your nervous system, when you go to ask a girl out and she rejects you, it gets triggered and bang, you're into emotional mm. overwhelm. And the reason why you know it's traumatic is, or you know that it's trauma being triggered, it's not actually traumatic being told that a girl won't go out with you. What's traumatic was your initial failure to attach to your mother. So the reason why... You you know, it's trauma being triggered is because the emotional response is out of proportion to what's actually going yeah, on yeah. in the present day. Yeah. Like, it's not actually it, a threat to you to have a girl not go out with you. But it'll feel it because your mother not bonding to you was a threat to your life in your infant nervous system. You just did a really good job of um, summarizing this article, the third one that you just wrote in March of this year. So if anyone wants to look that up, it's How to Heal Attachment Trauma. And that's right. basically everything that Graham has just been explaining, that article. So that's yes. good so I don't have to go through the article because you just did it. 
that's pretty much great. attachment theory in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a topic dear to my heart, and I actually haven't covered on this. Uh, well, I did once. I had a I had a um awesome author on um, who wrote a book called Being There about the presence of a mother in the first three years of her child's life, and we did absolutely get into attachment there. Oh yeah, well um, that's a whole. I mean, I could uh, we could do another. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. Like that's just such a big subject that gets, in my opinion, zero. And I do mean zero coverage because it's so um, politically incorrect to to acknowledge that and discuss it because that's just opens a whole can of worms. Yeah. Well, I uh, to me, I think it's profound. Like it's kind of I came to conclude it was the core of my personal wounding, and then because we tend to attract people that have the same thing. So all the clients that came to me had yeah. the same thing going on. You know, they'd read my stuff and went, "I relate to this," but they just didn't know what was going on or how to deal with it. Um, okay. So in terms of affecting a boy versus a girl. So one of the things that Mm. Andre and I have talked about is we have a whole, uh, episodes a couple weeks back on, yes, it's not only okay, but good to raise your sons and daughters differently (laughs) because, Mm. you know, today that's not a popular concept because we're all the same. So we come along and say, uh, no, that's just ridiculous. Of course, you're a boy, you're a girl, you're going to be raised differently. It's just natural. So here's an example. When um, a boy starts to pull away from his mom around Mm. the age of 10 or 11, 12, somewhere in there, that's a very natural occurrence of him turning into a man. And Mm. in order for him to become a man, he needs to detach from his mom so that he's not babied. And he can start mm. to become a man. That's where his father becomes absolutely instructive and mm. huge in his life. And if that father is not available or absent, he has a gaping hole there and he's going to struggle with mm-hmm. what it means to be a man. But either which way he's going to clash with his mom or he's going to become really feminized and get really close with his mom. There's that. But mm. if you, I like to think of, so I just had, it's just my sister and me and I like to think, I don't like to think. I, whenever I would think of my mom having had a son, I shudder at that because she was not, just like she was raised, she was not able to let go and let uh-huh. the children go from being children to adults. And so it was that, you know, looking at you like a child really your whole life and that that's her job is to sort of mother you permanently. So she would never have let go at age 11, 12, or 13 of a boy, and it would not mm. have been good. <laughs> So I, when I read yours, I sort of thought of that and how that's not quite the same way with a girl. A girl's not looking to pull away from her mom when she's 11, 12, or 13. She really needs her, actually. So yeah. that's just one example of how um, I think being a son or a daughter of, you know, this particular type of mother and father is um, potentially harmful. There are hmm. other ways, too. I don't know if you've ever thought about the difference in well, genders. But. I'm curious how that dynamic plays out. Like, I really like your description of how the father becomes more the dominant figure in the boy's life as he becomes an adolescent because he's pulling away from his mother and he's developing more of his masculine qualities. But how does that work out for the daughter then? So, well, the daughter obviously is feminine and so she's looking, well, you know, typically. So she's looking at her mom as a model. So when you're when you're young, the needs of the mother are kind of the same or equal for a boy and a girl, but as they get older and become into a man or a woman or a young woman or a young man, they're naturally going to want to look at their respective uh, sex, same sex parent as yep. models. And they're going to get closer to that same sex. Typically, I mean, not always um, mm. to look because that's how they're gauging their future. And, and, and they want to know how that same sex parent you know, lived his or her life, you know, the choices he or she made and, and, and wanting instruction from that same sex parent, I think is much more um, natural than wanting it from the opposite sex parent as far yeah. as life choices and whatnot, which is not to say that a man is not very important to a teenage girl. He absolutely is. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say more so than a mom is to her son. I have a teenage son now who I swear to you, I think I could disappear for like a month and he wouldn't even know I'm gone. <laughs> Which sounds sounds terrible, Um, only because he's just very, very, he's just almost ready to fly the coop. You know, he's he's one more year left and he's just, he's just a young man and he's very mature and um, he's very close to this, close to his dad. And Hmm. he just, he's going to notice his dad's absence more than he's going to notice mine. 
Um, so right. it's yeah, I just think it's um, just just the well, way nature is. What's that? Yeah, he's individuating. Yeah, yeah, and if I was the type to not let go and and to take it personally, and it, to be honest with you, it is really hard. I mean, it's been really difficult to let him go mm. much earlier than I expected to, and it's hard. Right. And it's for me, I'm from a selfish perspective. It's really actually difficult. But I know that I have to do that to let him fly. And if I held on to him, I would cause him problems, you know, or if I overmothered him or any of that. Mm. Well, I'm like, I'm uh, reassured to hear you acknowledge that because that's exactly the challenge that the mother faces on her side of the relationship when a boy is individuating is that it's painful because it involves a loss. Mm-hmm. And the loss is the loss of that infant relationship, the infantile relationship that she had. And that it's now transforming into a new kind of relationship, which is more adult-adult as opposed to adult-child. And a controlling or narcissistic mother that's unable to deal with abandonment will try and respond to that situation by keeping the child enmeshed (laughs) in an adult-child relationship, which is fundamentally unhealthy for the child and for the adult. Right. Um, So I totally get that it's painful for a mother to let go. And that's the reason why some mothers don't want to do it. But you've got the awareness that it's not in his interest or ultimately in yours really to maintain a relationship that's not going to function. Yeah. And I think my having, you know, I mean, I had to get a lesson in what it means to be a man from my husband and son. Cause I really didn't get it in the traditional sense from my father. I mean, he was extremely, extremely stable and just rock solid. Um, and just a great, great man, but I would not mm-hmm. call him, masculine in the traditional sense. He wasn't a manly man. He was more of a um, bookish type, you know. So um, I just had a lot to learn, (laughs) which Mm. I did from my very uh, masculine husband (laughs) and son. Uh, So I kind of, you know, learned as I went along. Um, But I remember, you you know, when you become a parent, you think back to your own experiences very much so when you're when you're in the process of parenting. And one of the most obvious ones for me was that once my once I became old enough to have an opinion about something or to, you know, like just become my own person, that's when my mom would struggle because she didn't have that uh, control anymore. Because I, So she loved babies, you know, and it was great when we were young. And then the moment I, I had a voice of my own, it was just bad from that point on. She just didn't know what to do with me. And like she, she was fine with my sister because my sister was very compliant by nature, and uh, I was very defiant by nature. So okay. yeah, it's 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 complicated. I mean, that whole control thing is just it's complicated, isn't it, Graham? <laughs> it certainly is complicated. And even that, what you've described with your sister is a very it's a classic illustration of the dynamic where there's two ends of the spectrum. There's I can submit, I'll survive yes. by submitting or I'll survive by rebelling. And neither of those actually represents true freedom because there's still a response to yes. the control. Yes. So in order to achieve true freedom, you've got to say, deal with that wounding and then go, you know, I can actually make my own choices. And sometimes that, that might mean to go along with what my mother wants. And other times it might mean to not go along with my mother, what my mother wants, but I'm not doing it just to survive. Like I'm doing it because this is what I actually want. Yeah. Um, yeah. My sisters tended to react in similar kind of ways. One rebelled and one submitted, I would say. But um, yeah, I mean, I I tended to submit. My role model as a father was to submit. And then the flow on effect, when I talked about trauma before, so I only talked about the infantile attachment trauma, but I recognized later on, once I dealt with a lot of that, that the communication styles and patterns that I learned in my relationship with my parents by modeling them. And that's what children do. They model people around them. When I went out into the real world and applied those communication styles, they didn't work very well and I got rejected a lot. And that was that in itself was also traumatic, being rejected by other children and by adolescents and by women as an adult. Like while I said that the reason why those things are painful is they trigger the infantile trauma, that's true, but there's also those things are just traumatic in their own right. And... A lot of that for me was the fact that I was applying communication strategies that just didn't work and never really did work, but I learned them in order to survive in an environment that just wasn't very healthy. So, Graham, let's just close by telling some telling people what some of those things are, the things that you work with with people when you coach them that they can do to recover, such as developing your communication skills, which you've written about in this um, one of these articles. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a really key thing um, to develop communication skills. Once you recognize that the ones you learnt that all that you internalized and became your default as a child don't actually work very well, it takes a bit of effort to learn newer ways of doing it. Um, I'm a really big fan of Marshall Rosenberg's work on nonviolent communication. Um, I'd highly recommend his book um, because it teaches you how to communicate on a, a level of empathy, which is all about emotional communication and also on a level of needs. And the idea is that if you're using this communication style, you and the people around you are more likely to get all your needs met. No, there's no guarantee because there's no guarantee of anything in life. Um, if two people in a relationship are both using this communication style, like it's likely to just go ballistic, you know, it's likely to be incredible. But even if only one of them is doing it, it still kind of works. So that's part of the idea that you can't force other people to adopt your communication style. You, all you can do is do the best that you can. And that's part of the philosophy behind nonviolent communication. Well, and I think you can model it without. So my theory is you can just, you don't have to demand it of the other person, but just model what you want to see. And that if you right. just are consistent with that and you're married, the other person is going to naturally pick that up in some way. They're going to have to, or they're going to come out looking, you know, sort of not as effective, if that makes sense. It's almost um, like they yeah. have to rise to your level. At least that's, I think that's a better approach than to attack the other person or tell them what's wrong with them. Right. Yeah, totally. You've got to be walking your own talk. And then, like you say, if the other person is functional, I mean, you didn't actually say that, but I was thinking while you were saying that, if the other person is reasonably functional, they'll kind of cotton on. Like if they're deeply narcissistic, uh, that might not work. But yes, then, true. Um, the other advantage of these communication styles, they involve some vulnerability. And if you're using these communication styles in all your relationships before you commit to marriage, for instance, you will fairly quickly learn whether the other person responds empathically or avoidantly. And then you can make a choice about whether you really want to pursue a relationship with them and spend the rest of your life teaching them how to communicate. <laughs> that's hard work. <laughs> that is. Oh, that's and, not ideal. Okay. Nobody's got it all together. So to some degree, there's even a philosophy in some spiritual communities that the very purpose of relationships is to deal with all this stuff and learn how to communicate and heal our wounding and everything. And I have a lot of respect for that outlook. So, you know, it's going to be a bit of work, but um, by using these kind of strategies where you're revealing how you feel and then you're noticing how other people respond to that, you can get a bit of a sense of whether those people are really in your interests. Yeah, and then the other, the other thing you wrote about here is, is that going back to what we were saying before is learning to master your emotions, which is a key, a key thing. And when you're mm. in a relationship so that you can express them constructively and like sort of own the emotion and rather than, and so I talked with GS Youngblood about this, who wrote the masculine in relationship. And we talked about how that owning that emotion and feeling it and not reacting to the other person is key because if you can master your own emotion, then you're not going to lash out when she does. Right. Or when he does. But like, but in his case, he was talking about um, being a, a husband or a man. Mm. I mean, in a relationship. Oh, yeah, totally. And a, a lot of that for me comes down to having healed a lot of that emotional wounding and trauma from infancy and childhood. And I totally saw in my parents' relationship, once I started to recognize what was really going on, that they would, in the conflict I would immediately devolve into this critical bitter personal trying to rip each other down it was just their childhood wounding going off and I more recently I came across the work of Jennifer Kalari and her concept of connected parenting and uh, I just think it's absolutely brilliant and I, I don't actually have children so you might wonder why I'd be interested in connected parenting and it's because I recognized that when I was having difficulties in relationships with people it was always because my wounded inner child was triggering theirs. And what I was actually dealing with was an infant, not an adult. <laughs> and I needed to learn strategies for calming an infant's regulatory system when they're triggered. So, yeah, we've actually, yes, yeah, we've covered that, that the idea of looking at, in this case, we were talking about a, a, a wife who's sort of out of you know, control, if you will, and the man doesn't know what to do with it. And that if you look at her as like you do, I don't know if I use the word wounded, but 
Um, mm-hmm. But GS talked about this. Rather than being angry at her, uh, you look at her with sympathy that she's feeling out of control. And that that's not yeah. personal. That's just her being, oh, as you put it, as that's good. It's almost childlike. You don't want to be patronizing about it. But, I mean, if you just think about where it's coming from, it's actually really helpful to shift your your response because you're not as mad about it. You're more empathetic. Mm. Well, that's the theory, of course, in the throes of oh, in the throes of a fight. It's not that easy, but... Um, oh, yeah, I, I get that. And empathy is really what's missing. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that they didn't get initially. That's the thing that yeah. is likely to calm them down now. It, the trick is that empathy... When you empathize with someone that's in deep feeling, that can drive them deeper into the feeling. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it can mean they feel it more strongly, particularly yeah. if they're very detached from their emotions. And part of the challenge for me, learning to work with clients and dealing with empathy and all that stuff, like empathy is key to what I do with my clients. It's kind of an underlying skill and it's expressed in a bunch of ways we don't have time to go into right now. But the trick for me was when I expressed empathy towards my mother because she was narcissistic and emotionally avoidant, that empathy would cause her to connect more deeply with her feelings, which is what she didn't want. Yeah, yes. I know exactly what you her, mean. Yes. So she would shut it down. Yep. But that meant... This, or, this retaliate. Strategy, or retaliate. Or retaliate. Or yeah. retaliate, criticize yeah. right. anything right. like, right. You know, how do you think I feel? And I'd be like... <laughs> and I was only very recently, like I'm 52, but it was only last year I had an argument with my mother where she goes, how do you think I feel? And I said, I don't want to play guessing games with you, mum. If you want me to know how you feel, why don't you just tell me? <laughs> and then that's good. <laughs> And it was, yeah, I was angry, yeah. but I was assertive. And I just said, I don't want to play guessing games. It's exactly what my dad should have said to her. I don't yeah. want to play these guessing games yes. with you. If you yes. want me to know how you feel, you tell me. And Bingo. interestingly, that conversation, when she was really angry and I was triggered because I'm still learning to deal with her being angry, she became super sweet towards me. Like she backed down almost immediately. Mm. It was exactly what I described before. I'd set a strong boundary of I don't play guessing games mm-hmm. with you. You have to tell me how you feel. Mm-hmm. She backed right down and then started just being super lovely. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> because I it's remarkable when, she... when you see it, isn't it? And that goes back to what you were saying when you're like, that's what a woman ultimately wants is they want to be, they want those boundaries placed on them because they feel yeah. out of control. Ultimately, they're just, they're out of control of themselves. They're not trying to lash out at you and be nasty, which is really right. hard to remember in the moment, but it's true. It, and so if you can find a way to calm them, that's ultimately what they're screaming out for. Exactly. And I was assertive. I was very assertive. I wasn't abusive, though. Right. So part of, part of her nervous system would have picked up, oh, this is a safe guy to be around. He's not going to play that old game that I've played my whole life where we just rip each other to shreds. He's just going to tell me I'm not doing that. Does she know what you do? With your confident man project and your, that you're coaching people about this type of thing, I'm just curious. My parents are both gone, and I did oh, not that's... feel comfortable writing about this or talking about this in any way until they were gone. I still don't feel uh, comfortable with it, but I'm always curious about people whose parents are still alive. A friend of mine asked me that question just the other day, actually, because he, he was had dealt with a similar thing and would like to help other people, but he was afraid of putting his story out on the internet because yeah. what if they read it? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I feel a bit anxious about that myself. It's never been a problem in the past because my mother is very um, technology illiterate. Never, okay. She doesn't know how to use the internet. Oh, perfect. But now that, that my dad's not alive, she's had to learn how to do some of these things and she may come across it. And some of the things that I've written about her may not be read particularly favorably. Um, <laughs> so, I would imagine not. Well, that's, that's pretty... Um... That's pretty bold and courageous of you. My hat's off to you. It's hard. It's very hard. Well, um, one of the profound learnings that I got, I did a course called the Hoffman Process that was all about cutting what they call negative love attachments to your parents. And one of the exercises at the very end of that course was all about learning to tolerate your parents' distress. And I thought, that's really profound. Mm. Like, you've actually got to be, to be free, you've actually got to be able to do what's important to you and good for you and in your best interests, even if it's going to upset one of your parents and be okay with that. Definitely. You're right. I agree. Well, Graham, tell everybody where they can find you, please. Sure. So um, the Confident Man Project, if you're interested in the stuff I've been talking about, confidentman.net is the place to go for that. Um, I started it aimed at men predominantly because I felt 
I had a lived experience as a man going through this stuff. I didn't really know what it was like for women, which is why it's been fascinating hearing your perspective. But I also find a lot of women contact me and say, look, you've pretty much nailed it. Um, equally, that applies to a woman mm -hmm. or it's a bit different for a woman because the dynamic's a bit different, but are really relating to the underlying themes. Yeah. Um, I'm also, my other interest in life is in music and comedy, and we didn't get into that in this conversation, but I've also got a website where I'm pursuing the combination of music, comedy, and therapy in some kind of evolving way, and that's grahamstoney.com. Stoney spelled S-T-O-N-E-Y.com. Excellent, and that's Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, just in case, like the cracker. Graham Cracker. That's right. Some people spell it wrong. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. G-R-A-H-A-M-S-T-O-N-E-Y. I love the name Graham. I think it's a great name. They named a biscuit after me. <laughs> yes, they did. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your coming on and talking to me about this. Fun. It's definitely been the most personal for me, so I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm, an, I'm kind of an open book, so it's all good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So thank you very much, Graham, and I um, hope to talk with you soon. You take care. Sweet. Thanks, Suzanne. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. And now for the email of the day. It is from Alexandra who writes, Dear Suzanne, which stage of relationship is better to start having sex if before marriage? Should I tell the guy right away about it? For example, no sex before engagement, or should I just follow my gut? I am 29, divorced, no children, no rush, but I know I want to get married again and have children, and I'm in doubt whether I should be as strict about no sex before marriage because I want to get married. Will it be too much pressure on a guy and scare him away? My stock answer to that is always that there's there's just no way, in my opinion, that the right guy would ever be scared away from a woman who is not going to jump in bed with him. I mean, that just, if he, if he does, he's not your guy. I mean, that's, that's one obvious answer. Um, so that should be a nice gauge for you. Now, um, I think it really is much more natural when you're older and you're both potentially looking to marry. And I think there's not enough uh, tension placed on what people are looking for when they're dating. I think it's perfectly reasonable to be letting the other person know that you're looking for a match for life, right? I mean, you're not in the first date, but as you're going along, it's going to be really obvious that you're in this potentially to find a match. And when that match is really obvious, which takes months to solidify and be clear on, the sex is really, in my opinion, very natural. And so if at any point you feel like you have to ask yourself whether or not you should, or you have to worry about the effects of whether or not you do, then that's kind of a, a gauge for whether or not the relationship is right, because it just shouldn't be that complicated. That, that's my take on it. No, now I might give a different answer to somebody who's, you know, 18 or 19 years old. Well, I definitely would. But at any rate, so for adult women and men who are looking for a life partner, that's, that's my message there. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Banker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk with Danielle Crittenden, co-host with Christina Hoff Summers of the podcast Femme Splainers, and author of a very important book that's just as relevant today as when she wrote it 20 years ago. It's called What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us. Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman. Finally, please consider sharing the Suzanne Banker podcast with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. Shoot them a text or an email with a link to a specific episode you enjoyed.
Word of mouth is the primary way podcasts grow. I also want to remind you that if you're looking for marriage or relationship coaching, go to SuzanneBanker.com and click on the coaching button at the top. And if you have a question or a comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the SuzanneBankerShow.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.